This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. According to ancient Greek myth, the Titan Prometheus was the one who first gave humans fire. The gods had hidden the technology away, but Prometheus stole it and returned it to Earth. Zeus was furious and punished Prometheus by chaining him to a rock. Every day, an eagle swooped down and ate his liver, and every night, the liver grew back. Prometheus was doomed to a life of eternal pain. But Prometheus was not the only one to suffer for the theft of fire. Around 700 BC, the Greek poet Hesiod wrote The Works and Days, in which he told the tale of Prometheus. But he also described how the gods punished man for accepting fire. They created the first woman and named her Pandora. The gods gave Pandora a jar filled with all of life's miseries. They sent her down to earth, where she married Prometheus's brother. Soon thereafter, she opened the jar and unleashed the evils within. Among them were illness and death. If man hadn't reached for the technology of fire, humans would still be immortal, just like the gods. But the endless pursuit of knowledge is something that links humans through the ages. Ever since we picked up a stick to reach a higher branch, we've used our tools to extend our reach. We can now already extend our reach mentally. I can take out a device from my pocket and access all of human knowledge with a few keystrokes. And these tools are continuing to grow exponentially in power. That's American author and futurist Ray Kurzweil speaking in a video for the educational website Big Think in 2009. Kurzweil is a prominent voice in transhumanism, a movement that aims to enhance humans' intellectual and physiological power through technological innovations. He is also a director of engineering at Google. The cell phone Kurzweil referenced back in 2009 is, today, a common example of these technological innovations. Now, Kurzweil and other transhumanist thinkers are aiming toward a more extreme goal, the radical extension of the human lifespan. Here's Kurzweil in a different Big Think video from 2012, talking about the book he co-authored with Dr. Terry Grossman. We just came out of the book today called Transcend, Nine Steps to Living Well Forever, and we described three bridges to radical life extension. Bridge one is what you can do right now. Uh, bridge two is the full flowering of this biotechnology revolution where we will have far more powerful methods to really reprogram our genes away from aging and away from disease. That's bridge two, and that'll bring us to bridge three, maybe 25 years from now, the nanotechnology revolution where we can have billions of nanobots keeping us healthy at the level of every cell in our body, which enable us to back up ultimately the information in our brains Eventually, Kurzweil predicts we'll reach a moment when machines will become infinitely more powerful than human intelligence. Actually, that eventually is pretty soon. By 2045, we'll have expanded the intelligence of our human-machine civilization a billion-fold. That will be a singularity. Writer Megan O'Giblin was working as a cocktail waitress when she came across one of Kurzweil's books. It was 2006. O'Giblin had recently left the evangelical Christian church she'd grown up in, and she'd recognized something in the transhumanist text. These predictions of a coming transformation, when life as we know it will change forever, mapped closely to her religious upbringing. 
I grew up in a tradition where pastors were always talking about, you know, when the rapture was going to happen, it could happen any day, it could happen within 10 years. And, you know, they would draw on events in the news uh, to sort of make the case that all the prophecies were were falling in line and, you know, that the second coming was very imminent. Like her childhood pastors, Kurzweil predicted an imminent but unknowable change that was coming just over the horizon. But his prophecies were different. In a 2017 essay for the magazine N Plus One that O'Giblin will be reading selections from today, she wrote, Kurzweil's prophecies seem different because they were bolstered by science. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. Megan O'Giblin saw echoes of her evangelical past in these transhumanist ideas. But when she dug deeper, she found a much stronger link. Ever since early scientists began experimenting with immortality elixirs in the Middle Ages, religion has been influencing transhumanism. Now, we're beginning to see transhumanism influencing religion. Transhumanism has its roots in Christian beliefs about the end of the world, which tend to center on a few core prophecies. That the last days will be marked by great turmoil and tribulation. That Jesus will return to earth and lead the final battle against the forces of Satan. And that the righteous dead will be resurrected and reign with Christ for a thousand years in a transformed world. The vast majority of Christians throughout the ages have believed that these prophecies would happen supernaturally. God would bring them about when the time came. But some Christians introduced a new possibility in the Middle Ages. You know, since the medieval period, there's been a tradition of Christians who basically believe that mankind, humankind, had a, a role uh, to play in bringing about the resurrection and that it could be done um, particularly through science and technology. One French Franciscan friar named Jean de Roquetaillade believed humans would need to master the art of alchemy to fight off the forces of the Antichrist. He worked for years in his monastery to develop what he called the Quinta Essentia, or the fifth element. This fifth element was also known as the Philosopher's Stone, and many medieval scientist monks believed it would have the power to turn base metals into gold, cure all diseases, and even extend life. Some monks dreamed even bigger. Roger Bacon, a 13th century English friar whom many consider to be the first Western scientist, attempted to develop an elixir of life that would replicate the effects of the resurrection as described in the New Testament. A lot of these figures basically believe that science was a way to bring about the second coming of Christ. Bacon and other early scientists would not have called themselves transhumanists. The word transhuman didn't appear until 1814 in Henry Francis Carey's translation of Paradiso. Paradiso is the third and final book in the 14th century poet Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. In a climactic passage, the protagonist is ascending into heaven after his long journey through hell and purgatory. When he enters heaven, his human body is transformed. Dante, the, the, the poet, actually created a new word, a new verb, transhumanar, to describe the transformation. And the idea was that it was supposed to capture how ineffable the experience was that it was nothing that had ever happened in human experience before. And uh, the exact quote is, words may not tell of that transhuman change. Over the following centuries, many Christians continued to experiment with techniques for overcoming death. In 1774, a society was founded in London to advance the idea that seemingly dead people, especially people who drowned, were not really dead. It was called 
perhaps a bit too accurately, the Society for the Recovery of Persons Apparently Drowned, which later evolved into the Humane Society. Across the ocean, the American scientist Benjamin Franklin and others speculated that electricity might possibly be used to revivify the human body, a theory that inspired the development of early defibrillators and inspired English novelist Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein, which was subtitled The Modern Prometheus. Fascination with scientifically reviving the dead was not limited to Western Europe or North America. In the late 19th century, a Russian Orthodox ascetic named Nikolai Fedorov was inspired by Darwinism to argue that humans could direct their own evolution to bring about the resurrection. Up to this point, natural selection had been a random phenomenon. But now, thanks to technology, humans could intervene in this process. Fedorov's ideas captured the imagination of much of the Russian intellectual class, including the author Leo Tolstoy. This is not as insane as it seems, he wrote in a letter to a friend in 1881. It is a task that is worth the effort of all mankind. The first person to argue for a version of Kurzweil's singularity was a French Jesuit priest and paleontologist named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. In 1949, Teilhard proposed that in the future, all machines would be linked to a vast global network that would allow human minds to merge. Over time, this unification of consciousness would lead to an intelligence explosion, the Omega Point, enabling humanity to break through the material framework of time and space and merge seamlessly with the divine. In Tehard's mind, this was how the biblical resurrection would take place. Christ was guiding evolution toward a state of glorification so that humanity could finally merge with God in eternal perfection. It was around this time that the word transhumanism was coined in the way we use it today. It was also when the movement began to shed its more explicitly religious roots. Most histories of the movement attribute the first use of the term transhumanism to Julian Huxley, the British eugenicist and close friend of Teilhard's, who, in the 1950s, expanded on many of the priest's ideas in his own writings, with one key exception. Huxley, a secular humanist, believed that Teilhard's visions need not be grounded in any larger religious narrative. In 1951, he gave a lecture that proposed a non-religious version of the priest's ideas. Such a broad philosophy, he wrote, might perhaps be called not humanism, because that has certain unsatisfactory connotations, but transhumanism. It is the idea of humanity attempting to overcome its limitations and arrive at fuller fruition. But over the next eight years, Huxley seemed to change his mind. He'd originally proposed a purely secular version of transhumanism, but he increasingly believed that the philosophy needed to develop its own religious narrative. On December 18, 1959, Huxley spoke at a centennial celebration of the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species at the Monterey Peninsula College in California. I think it's fair to say that the exploration of the mind has barely begun. We'll make available to our descendants all kinds of new possibilities of fuller and richer living. The exploration of mind will also lay the basis for the new religion that I think we definitely must see looming over the evolutionary horizon of man. This emergent religion of the near future, it should enable us to define our sense of right and wrong more clearly so as to provide a better moral support. The word transhumanism now refers to a broad category of theories and philosophies, 
but evolution remains at its root. To paraphrase Huxley, transhumanists strive to go beyond the original limitations nature set for human beings. And according to this definition, we are all transhumanists. We've developed medicine to overcome disease and extend lifespans. We use prosthetics, pacemakers, and IUDs to enhance our quality of life. With gene editing technology like CRISPR, scientists are even beginning to identify and repair the genes that cause terminal illnesses. But for most self-identified transhumanists, these incremental improvements aren't what really excites them. Transhumanism is the philosophical movement that we can use technology and science to greatly improve the human condition. And not just greatly improve the human condition, but radically transform the human condition to the point where we would no longer even be considered human. We would be considered post-human at that point. And it's really an idea of guidance in our own evolution. That's Blair Osler, the former president and a current board director of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. As a queer Mormon woman who had struggled with infertility, Osler was drawn to transhumanism because it was a movement dedicated to overcoming both biological and cultural limits. For its adherents, transhumanism offers a new narrative of history, a temporal horizon where utopia might yet be created. And this is perhaps why O'Giblin was first drawn to Ray Kurzweil's books in 2006. In the years before, she had dropped out of Bible school and then stopped believing in God entirely. But she was having a hard time coming to terms with her newfound atheism and all the losses that came with it. More than the death of God, I was mourning the dissolution of this teleological narrative, which envisioned all of history as an arc bending assuredly toward a moment of final redemption. It was a loss that had fractured even my subjective experience of time. My hours had become non-hours. Days seemed to unravel and circle back on themselves. In Bible school, O'Giblin had studied a branch of dispensational theology that divided history into different eras, starting with the dispensation of innocence and ending with the millennial kingdom and Christ's return. In Kurzweil, she found unexpectedly similar ideas. Kurzweil divided all of evolution into successive epochs, the epoch of physics and chemistry, the epoch of biology, the epoch of brains. We were living in the fifth epoch when human intelligence begins to merge with technology. Soon we would reach the singularity, the point at which we would be transformed into what Kurzweil called spiritual machines. We would transfer or resurrect our minds onto supercomputers allowing us to live forever. Our bodies would become incorruptible, immune to disease and decay, and we would acquire knowledge by uploading it to our brains. Nanotechnology would allow us to remake Earth into a terrestrial paradise, and then we would migrate to space, terraforming other planets. Our powers, in short, would be limitless. This narrative focuses on scientific mastery, but for many transhumanists, the true purpose of life is moral refinement, becoming more oriented towards love, mercy, beauty, and truth. Here is Kurzweil in a 2006 talk at Singularity University, a think tank in Silicon Valley that he helped found. So as uh, we evolved, we became more intelligent. We became more capable of higher level emotions. So we became more loving. We became more creative. We became more beautiful. And so we're actually moving exponentially to have greater uh, 
levels of the very properties we ascribe to God, so we become more godlike, never quite becoming infinite, so we never really reach that ideal, but you can definitely say that evolution is a spiritual process that moves us closer to God. If evolution is a spiritual process, then transhumanists who aim to affect their own evolution are on a spiritual mission. Transhumanists believe that while we have progressed a great deal as a species, we will only achieve utopia if we use technology to fundamentally change our instincts for the better, to once and for all overcome our genetic propensity to be selfish or short-sighted. In this evolutionary journey, the arc bends toward the divine. But if one goal of transhumanism is to make humans more godlike, another is to create a new kind of god altogether. In May 2017, an ex-Google engineer and controversial startup founder named Anthony Lewandowski filed papers with the IRS to establish a new religious organization. The Way of the Future, that's the name of this religion, will focus on, quote, the realization, acceptance, and worship of a godhead based on artificial intelligence developed through computer hardware and software. Lewandowski believes that humans dominate the world because we evolved to be more intelligent than other animals. And in the same way, AI will eventually supersede the power of its creators. It will be so much more intelligent than us that it will effectively become a god. With the internet as its nervous system, the world's connected cell phones and sensors as its sense organs, and data centers as its brain, this new deity will be as omniscient and omnipotent as any previous vision of God. In the face of such power, Lewandowski believes humans will merely submit and pray to be spared. It's no surprise that traditional religions find these parts of the transhumanist project deeply uncomfortable. It directly threatens long-held conceptions of both humanity and divinity. We are living in a world where change is happening exponentially, and it can be a scary world. This is Calvin Mercer, a professor of religious studies at East Carolina University. When you have the technology that, that has been applied to communication technology, transportation technology, now starting to be applied to our bodies and our minds, uh, this is very anxiety producing for many people. And some people uh, in the Christian religion and other faith communities, I think, are going to revert into a reactionary, fundamentalist, uh, seemingly you know, easy, safe zone. But according to Mercer, no zone is safe from the consequences of emerging technologies. I was, grew up a conservative uh, Christian, and my early training was in biblical studies. And my own work is in the context of Christianity. But every religion on the planet is going to um, be forced to address these developments. And the future of those traditions are going to depend on how they respond, I think, to these developments. Another unknown is the technology itself. Human beings have been irrepressibly religious uh, throughout history. And uh, the question is, uh, when we develop sentient machine intelligence, you know, what is their relationship and sensibility going to be with regard to the divine or with regard to religious questions? So as we move into this world, uh, religion... Uh, if it if it hardens and tries to stick to a 
a hardened theology, I think it's going to be left behind eventually. Religion does change, and so it's going to uh, need to rethink all of its institutions, its practices, and its rituals. But not all religions see transhumanism as a theological threat. In fact, some have found ways to reconcile transhumanist philosophies with their existing teachings. For example, my own religious tradition, Mormonism. For uh, Mormons and Christians specifically, we have the doctrine of theosis. And theosis is the idea that it's not just our job to become like God, but to become gods ourselves. This is Blair Osler again, the former president of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. This is written in our scriptures. It's taught by our prophets and by our founder, Joseph Smith, and in our temple rituals. Theosis is what makes us uh, a distinct and immersive and a robust form of Christianity. On April 7, 1844, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, gave a sermon that included some radical ideas about God. He said that God was once a human like us, but over time had progressed in power and intelligence, and that we too had that same divine potential. You've got to learn how to be gods yourselves the same as all gods have done before you, by going from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to sit in glory as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. Lorenzo Snow, one of the later presidents of the church, described this doctrine more succinctly. As man is, God once was, and what God is, man may become. So when we think about technology radically improving the human experience and having these unique powers and capacity that very much resemble the miracles of Jesus Christ, you know, uh, curing disease, having the blind see, and with that, the powers of God, right? The powers to control things that humans have never been able to control. So when we talk about becoming gods, transhumanism is almost a way of manifesting that prophecy. One of the reasons Osler is so drawn to transhumanism is that she believes it encourages a more active faith. Instead of passively waiting for God to establish peace on earth or resurrect the dead, Osler says we should be working towards such visions ourselves. And to me, the, the effort forward, the trying, is just as much a manifestation of faith than, you know, apathy or escapism, or religious arrogance, and that we have the true way and God will take care of it. So my perspective is, we go into it with the attitude that we can and will and do make this happen, but with humility and saying, you know what, we may be totally wrong. And if at some point God feels the need to intervene on the prime directive and say, hey, transcendence is my job, I'll look forward to that too. Other religious groups are also reinterpreting their traditions to be more compatible with transhumanist concepts. Micah Redding, the founder of the Christian Transhumanist Association, argues that technology is our best avenue for fulfilling Christ's redemptive mission, to heal the sick, feed the hungry, free the captives, and bring life to the dead. And the Zen priest Michael Latora argues that transhumanism promises to achieve the Buddha's mission of eliminating all forms of suffering. Transhumanism gave Megan O'Giblin an ostensibly objective, scientific box in which to place her faith. She spent a decade in that box. What makes the transhumanist movement so seductive 
is that it promises to restore, through science, the transcendent hopes that science itself has obliterated. If anything had become clear to me, it was my own desperation, my willingness to spring at this largely speculative ideology that offered a vestige of that first religious promise. I had disavowed Christianity, and yet I'd spent the past ten years hopelessly trying to recreate its visions by dreaming about our post-biological future or fixating on the optimization of my own body, a modern pantomime of redemption. The origins and development of transhumanism reveal just how entangled the projects of science and religion have been throughout history. We do tend to think today of, of religion and science as being these sort of polar opposites. Um, and the truth is that science developed in, you know, in tandem with these Christian narratives. And I think a lot of, you know, Christian prophecy, Christian redemption narratives that sort of got in to um, sort of our very notion of scientific progress from the beginning. Transhumanism also reveals that science and religion are in constant dialogue, purported enemies that nevertheless each shape the other. You know, Christians, I think throughout the ages have always... Uh, sort of appealed to technological metaphors in in arguments for design and sort of in these creation myths, you know, and I think in the 19th century, there was this idea of God being a watchmaker. And, you know, this idea, it, I think it was supposed to reflect sort of the mechanical Newtonian understanding of the universe. And I think it's the case that we're always sort of looking at ideas about creation and design and just the nature of the universe through our own creations and through our own roles as, as creators. And as creators, we have the responsibility to consider the consequences of our creations. The seductive belief of transhumanism is that science will magically fix all of our problems. But if the history of technology shows us anything, it's that more technology might make things more difficult. The story of Prometheus is a warning that the reckless pursuit of new technology can bring unimaginable terrors. Instead of radical improvements, our new inventions may simply exacerbate the social inequality and isolation that we struggle with today. That doesn't mean we should shy away from utopian hopes, but we shouldn't expect that science will somehow do the hard work for us. We need to collectively build a compelling narrative of history and progress that offers the possibility for personal and social transformation. The discontent with our contemporary politics is partly that it lacks a powerful vision. Instead, it limply insists that the marketplace is the best and only solution for our problems. No wonder people are looking elsewhere for hope. It's interesting because I think a lot of us are very skeptical of ideology today. And, you know, there's all these polls now that claim that there's more atheists today in the Western world or more people who don't identify with any faith tradition than there ever has been before. Um, and yet at the same time, there's all of these other areas of our life which are taking on almost sort of religious aspects or, or sort of spiritual enthusiasms. So, and I think that's sort of what's happening with technology right now and with transhumanism in particular, um, that it is sort of a way to keep those, you know, it, it is sort of, I don't know, a receptacle for, for our, our need to believe. And I think that we you know, as a species have evolved to believe we, we've evolved a religious impulse and that I don't think that's something we're going to outgrow at any point, um, you know, regardless of what our future holds. As long as we're recognizably human, we will seek to transcend ourselves, whether through the tools we make or the stories we tell. 
And while extending our lifespans and increasing our knowledge are worthy goals, we still have to grapple with what to live for and what to think about. As long as those questions remain, we can't disentangle our quest for knowledge and our quest for meaning. We need both to help us work towards the world of freedom and equality and abundance we all dream of. This episode was produced by Galen Beebe. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Maria McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. We would love to hear from you. I'd like to recommend an episode of Words to That Effect, an Irish podcast about history, philosophy, and literature. In episode 21, The Invention of Time, host Connor Reed explores the development of time as we know it in the Victorian era. Clocks and time zones were first standardized in the 1800s, but there was a lot more to the discussion than just the hour of the day. I learned why that was the era when time travel became a popular literary trope, and what Darwin's theory of evolution had to do with it all. You can find words to that effect at wttepodcast.com or wherever you listen to Ministry of Ideas. In case you didn't know, Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to point you towards a fabulous episode of the Hub & Spoke show, The Lonely Palette. Host Tamar Abishai takes her listeners on incredible visual journeys, exploring art of all kinds. And in her episode on photographer Hiroshi Sugimoto's eerie work, Bird Theater, Richmond 1993, she weaves together time, place, and spirituality in a transcendently beautiful episode. Take a listen at thelonelypalette.com. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.